Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Amy. And I'm Hannah. And thank you for joining us for our latest episode. This episode is all about the Camino Frances pilgrimage route in Spain and features highlights from our latest Cicerone Live event. As part of our focus on pilgrimage routes and the 2021-2022 Holy Years, we were joined by Sandy Brown, author of Cicerone's Guidebook to the Camino Frances, and Eva Recvi, creator of the Camino Forum and Camino Forum Store. Sandy Brown is Cicerone's associate publisher for Caminos and Pilgrimages and has walked or biked over 10,000 kilometres of pilgrim trails in Europe and the US. Sandy's guidebook and companion map book cover the full 784-kilometre Camino Frances from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in southern France to Santiago de Compostela in Spain and includes an additional finish to Finisterre. Split into six sections and 36 customizable stages, which can be walked in total in four to five weeks, the guidebook lists over 500 pilgrim hostels, while the map book offers detailed stage-by-stage maps and profiles of the whole route, as well as over 120 town and village maps that help you find the exact location of accommodation and other sites important to pilgrims. As an avid long-distance walker and pilgrim, Sandy has also written guidebooks for Cicerone, covering the Way of St. Francis and the Via Francigena, and records his pilgrim adventures in his popular blog, www.caminoist.org. Sandy joined us for our event from the California Mission Trails to give us a fantastic overview of the Camino Frances. Eva Recve has been running the Camino Forum for almost 17 years, www.caminodesantiago.me forward slash community. The forum has accumulated almost 60,000 Camino questions with about 90,000 members. Seven years ago, he also started the Camino Forum store, www.santiagodecompostela.me, selling guidebooks and other items related to the Camino de Santiago. Eva joined us from Santiago de Compostela and was able to give us brilliant insights into the holy years and the recent renovations of the cathedral. Sandy started our event with a brilliant presentation about the route of the Camino Frances. All of the photos he showed are from his guidebook and can be viewed on the video for the live event on the Cicerone website or within the guidebook. Thank you so much, Amy. And it's really a privilege to be able to be here and to share about pilgrimage. And I want to start with just a kind of an overview of what pilgrimage is. Some people worry or wonder if this is a walk or a bike trip for religious purposes, or if it's a spiritual event, or if it's a recreational event. And I want to say that it's really all three things all together. And actually, I want to call on one of my favorite authors, the late, great Joseph Campbell, who is a cultural anthropologist, who describes the epic journey and what it means and what it's meant for thousands of years in worldwide culture. What he says is that there is a sort of journey where a person separates themselves from their community, where they take on a new identity, where they then go through ordeals, where they experience a transformation, and then where they return and describe the journey and describe the transformation and share that experience with their home community. And that description by Joseph Campbell, for me, really fits with what pilgrimage is all about. We take on a new identity, which is pilgrim, 
Then we experience ordeals, and maybe that's blisters, tendonitis, maybe that's sunburn or all kinds of things that happen along the way in the pilgrimage. Then we have transformation that's part of all of that. And you go back home and you share your experience. So to me, that's something that speaks very deeply about human culture and the way things change when somebody goes to the outside and has a new experience. And that's why I love the Camino Frances. That's why I love the Camino de Santiago. And that's why I think it's become more and more popular over these years. Even during the time that I've been involved, which my first Camino was 2008, it's about double the number of people, of course, in non-COVID years, entering into the 500,000 or so range as we get to a holy year. My book, The Cicerone Guide, Cicerone was one of the first that put together a Camino Frances guide. It was by Alison Raju. This is our second version after a hiatus of about 12 years. You can see a portion of the huge number of Caminos that head towards Santiago in Spain. The one in green is the Camino Frances, but you can see that there are many others. If somebody says to you they're going to walk the Camino, usually what they mean is they're going to walk the Camino Frances. It begins just inside the border at France at the little town of Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. The major cities of Pamplona, Logroño, Burgos, León, Astorga, Ponferrada, Saria, Arzua, Santiago, and then you see this sort of Y-shaped extension, which allows you to go either to Finisterre or Moshia, because some people say that even a more ancient pilgrimage route is to the Atlantic Ocean. This is my credential from 2008, and every night you get a stamp, usually where you stay. You can also get them along the way at a church you visit or something like that. And then when you get to Santiago de Compostela at the Cathedral Pilgrim Office, they'll look at your credential and determine if you are to be awarded the Compostela Certificate, which is a prized possession, even though it's out of paper, because it symbolizes that you've walked at least 100 kilometers. In the case of this credential, 800 kilometers, and many people walk even farther to get to Santiago de Compostela. So if you do the entire Camino Frances, you would begin in the little town of Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, which literally means foot of the pass. It's a red-roofed, white-walled kind of place with mountains around it, kind of uh, mountainous weather. And in fact, you have to watch the weather when you cross the pass into Spain. You walk for a little bit through forest and make your way into Spain. Now, once in Spain, you're in a mountainous area. It's really the foothills of the Pyrenees. And here's my wife who walked with me in 2018. She's the small person uh, next to the giant walls of Pamplona. And uh, this is what somebody gets used to as they're walking the Frances. These amazing medieval cities like Pamplona that are now host to thousands of pilgrims making their way through and enjoying their delights. And Pamplona, when it's not busy with the San Fermin Festival, is a great place for a pilgrim to stop and enjoy 
Basque culture. This is part of the Basque territory of Spain. You climb a mountain called Alto del Perdón outside of Pamplona, and this sculpture greets you. It's one of the iconic locales on the Camino. It's put there as part of an electrification project, but it describes pilgrims from old to pilgrims in modern days. So if you were to look closely, you'd see uh, medieval pilgrims on the left, and then look on the right, you'll see pilgrims wearing backpacks, having hats on, and so on, all underneath a canopy of stars from ancient and modern times. And here's one of the examples of why you'd want to have a guidebook, because it's possible to walk on to the town of Puente la Reina, or one of the towns nearby, and miss the fact that there is this remarkable 12th century chapel here at a little place called Ayunate. And it's said that if you walk around inside of the archways three times in your bare feet and pray, then you'll receive forgiveness. It's one of the places that has been a landmark on the Camino for many years. Now the territory begins to sort of broaden out. You're out of the mountains now. This is the town of Siroki, and you're in the far west of Navarre and beginning to come to La Rioja. This is also one of the iconic towns because it's a hill town that you can see for a great distance and then, of course, surrounded as well by vineyards. You've passed Puente La Reina and you've come to Estea. And wine is important, and there's a winemaker at Irache that gives free wine to passers-by. That includes walking, biking pilgrims, even bus tourists will stop here and have a sample. I don't think it's their finest vintage, but it is a memorable place to stop and have some refreshment along the way. And across is an ancient monastery at Irache, which is also worth the tour things begin to broaden out as you continue to make your way west. And this is after the town of Grañón. There are vast grain fields here. You come to the town of Los Arcos. And to me, this is funny. There's a great place that's a piazza with a system of arches on the church. And a lot of people stop there because it's a perfect place for a beer, a cup of coffee, and they don't go into the church. If you do go into the church... It's a very dark place, and uh, I don't know how to turn on the lights, but I took out my iPhone and took a picture. It's an amazing Baroque building, Santa Maria de los Arcos, and uh, your iPhone or your smartphone may be able to capture the beauty and the decorations of this domed sanctuary space. Then you come to the town of Logroño, and Logroño is famous as the capital of the wine region of La Rioja. And if you have not been introduced to Spanish wines from La Rioja, you want to give them a try because they're amazing. And Lagroño celebrates those with a fabulous set of alleyways that apparently once housed bordellos, but now house tapas and pincho restaurants. So at about seven o'clock, the tapas places open up and you can stroll through and get a plate of this or a plate of that along with a glass of wine to uh, carry along in your journey. 
Now, another reason for a guidebook is you may be walking through the town of Navarrete and not notice that there's a big ancient church to your right because it's squeezed up against a bunch of other buildings. But you'll want to enter it because one of the most lavish altar pieces is here in this church in Navarrete. As my wife, Teresa, walked in, she was flabbergasted with the splendor of this altar area. Then as we come to Santo Domingo de la Calzada, is that iconic scene of the plains and the road leading on into the distance. Then you come to the town of Burgos. And this is something about the Camino Frances that I think is significant. A person had never been to Spain, and even somebody that had been to Spain and stayed in the south around Sevilla and Granada or Madrid or Barcelona may not even know about the town of Burgos. But it turns out it's an important town in northern Spain, and you can see its long-time importance by the splendor of its cathedral this Baroque cathedral, which is mostly a museum now. There are worship services only in the left-hand building. It's quite remarkable. And I think one of the beautiful cathedrals, Baroque cathedrals of the world, right here on the Frances. There's a discount for entry for pilgrims. Now, the next great area you come to in the Frances is the Meseta. At a high point, you can see for maybe 10 or more kilometers this is a stretch after Carrion de los Condes, which is almost perfectly flat. And for the distance of 17 kilometers, there are no towns and a couple of little pop-up kind of services where you can get a coffee or a beer. But it's good to be prepared for a long distance where you won't have much service and you can see what the Meseta really looks like. Some people say this is a boring stretch. Other people say this is the most rewarding stretch because of the art treasures there and because of the focus on the walking. After the town of Leon, which I hate to skip, but I need to for time, this is the town of Hospital de Orbigo, which has a picturesque bridge, which has a story of a knight and fair maidens from the Middle Ages. But then you begin the walk up the Montes de Leon. Now the territory begins to be more rugged, and you're climbing up to a place called Cruz de Ferro. And what that is, is a iron cross at the top of what looks almost like a telephone pole, standing at the top of an enormous pile of stones and debris. One of the traditions of the Camino Frances is that you bring something like a rock from home and you carry it to this point where you set it at the foot of the cross. And that may bear something that you want to be forgiven for, somebody who you want to remember, like somebody who has died, a relationship that's broken and you want to let go of. But the idea here is to let go. And it becomes really one of the most holy places on the Francis. Then it's a matter of going downhill. And you walk down this very quiet road until you come to the town of Molina Seca, or Dry Mill. And it's the beginning of the Bierzo region, which is the second place that you want to study if you're interested in Spanish wines. Because Bierzo wines are... Uh, rivals of La Rioja. You continue on then, and you come to the region of Galicia. 
And in Galicia, you have these emerald rolling hills. You're looking down toward the coast now. The climate is very different. It's actually, uh, whether people call it a subtropical climate because of the amount of rain, it's not hot in terms of tropical temperatures, but it's green year round because of the reliability of the rain. And after another about 125 kilometers, you come to the beautiful Cathedral de Santiago uh, de Compostela. You can see one of the most uh, fun rituals inside, and that is at many of the noon pilgrim masses, a group of attendants will begin to swing the Botafumairo, which is a large incense sensor. If you extended your arms in a big circle, the sensor would be even bigger than that. And it swings from one transept to the next. And uh, it's quite the amazing thing. It was there originally for smelly old pilgrims in the Middle Ages. And the incense was designed to help make the odors a little bit more tolerable. And now it's a tradition that we showered and shaved pilgrims still adore very much. Continuing on from Santiago, everyone has a choice. If you go on to go either left toward Finisterre or right toward Muxia. If you go to Finisterre first, which I recommend, then you come to the towns of Say and Corcubion, which are both really lovely seaside towns. And then you walk along the coast and on the beach in order to get to the ancient town of Finisterre. If you go to the right, which I recommend after visiting Finisterre, then you come to the town of Muxia. And this is the chapel of Santa Maria de la Barca, where tradition says the Virgin Mary came to help Santiago, St. James, as he was evangelizing in Spain. And both places are a great place to see a sunset and celebrate the end of your successful Camino. If you're feeling inspired and want to discover the Camino Frances for yourself, please head over to the Cicerone website where you can get a 25% discount on the combined guidebook and map book. Type in Santiago25 at the checkout. That's S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O-2-5, Santiago25. We hope you enjoy reading Sandy's guidebook and discovering the Camino Frances route of the Camino de Santiago. After Sandy's presentation, we were joined by Ivar, who shared photos of the renovations to the Cathedral of Santiago and talked about his expectations for the upcoming Holy Year celebrations. That's one of the, I guess, upsides of this quiet period is that you have been able to take these amazing yes. photos. I've been down there a few times and, and it's very strange because they're taking 10 years to fix it up and they're, they're almost done. That's the holy door that is open only in holy years, which is this year and next year, because the whole year was extended one year. So that holy door is open this year and next year. And what do you think with the holy year? Do you think festivities, as far as you know, will be possible this summer, next summer? Uh, well, so originally holy year was only going to be this year, right? 2021. So the Shunta and the local government here in Galicia had a big budget to make all kinds of concerts and events and big festivities for this year. But now since the Pope in Rome has said that it, we could have 
the whole year also next year. And all with all the risk, travel restrictions and everything, I think the budget that they had to spend this year has been kind of moved on to next year. So I think this year there's going to not be a lot of concerts and things going on in town. It's going to be probably moved to next year. So here you see a picture of the cathedral that has been renovated, that they just almost finished renovating. And you can see the new benches there. The lighting is new. I kind of like it this way. Uh, I like it in the pictures because to me, it seems much warmer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, yep. the bright lights before, I think, were kind of glaring. And now it seems yeah. very warm and it emphasizes the stone. Which exactly, is, uh, because yeah. all the stone has been cleaned. They've used 10 years to do this because, of course, you can't just do a power wash on, on the cathedral. You have to almost with a toothbrush, you know, go very slowly. And, and on all the paint work that has been done at the altar, they were doing it inch by inch. It really has been, a, they have done a really good job. Well, the pictures of the altar area are interesting because, to me, it seems as though the gold of the Baroque altar now sort of fits with the rest a little bit better. It seems more subtle. And of course, you could always see the dust that had gathered on the heads of the statues and things like that. And you could see the paint was a little bit flaky. And, you know, it was, you could see that it really needed some work. And now it's, that's why also they shine the light up now, because before that, the arches were white and they're still white, but they were flaky before because there was a lot of humidity. As you mentioned, Galicia is very humid and the humidity has really taken a toll on the paint. And now, of course, that is all new. So it looks much nicer. Ivar, you've hosted the online Camino Forum for many years. What's the most you know, common question that people ask you when they're planning their route? Well, I don't think there's any one question that is the question everyone asks. It's, it's very practical. It, it varies because it goes by phases. A lot of very practical questions. How do I get from here to there? Any recommendation on backpacks and equipment? But of course, with 50, what is it, 56,000 questions, I think it is. You can get any information you really look, want uh, by just going there and using the search box at the top. People are also reading other people's experiences, trying to decide which Camino they would like to walk. Because not everyone walks the Camino Frances. There's other routes. So people use it also to try and find out what route is the one they want to walk. We've got a couple of questions about the practicalities of the route. So when is the best time for walking the Camino to avoid the summer heat? My favorite time to walk the Camino Frances is in the spring. And if you think about it, then think about the growing cycle. So in the spring, the farmers have planted the wheat and it's growing in green. In the summertime, the wheat has turned and it's golden, which is also beautiful. In the fall, the wheat has been harvested and plowed under and usually is waiting then for the next year's crop. So in the spring, you get lots of green colors in the summer, you get golden colors. In the fall, you get the colors of the soil, which actually can be very colorful as well. The one thing, though, too, about the fall is that as you go through the areas with the vineyards, that's when the harvesting of the grapes is going to be happening. So that's a fun and interesting time to be walking as well. So spring and fall have their advantages. I think that it's okay to walk in the summer too. I've walked in July and August and Galicia is uh, 
I guess Ivar said it was going to get up to like 27 degrees Celsius, which is unusual in the spring. That sounds like a summer temperature in Galicia, which is quite moderate in the summertime. And it's true that the meseta is sunny and warm, but it's good to remember that the meseta, which is the middle stretch, is very high in altitude, about 800 meters. And so, in my opinion, it's still cooler there than it is in similar places in southern Spain. So a summer Camino is possible. There are more college students in a summer Camino. You just have to take better care of yourself in the warm temperatures. By the way, my solution is a trekking umbrella. So uh, people still consider it odd, but uh, I trek with a silver-coated umbrella so that I can create my own shade wherever I go. My experience also is that the foreigners usually walk in May and September, and Spaniards usually yeah. walk in August, because that's their vacation month. There's a general question about the accommodation on the route, and do you think a sleeping bag is necessary to take, like a full sleeping bag, when you're walking in the summer, or will a silk sleeping bag liner do? First of all, on accommodations, after writing the guidebook, in which we identified all of the available accommodations. There are about 1,100 accommodations between Saint-Jean and Finisterre and Mouchia. About 600 of those are albergue styles. An albergue is basically a hostel in which there are multiple beds in a single room. But there's a transition that's happening on the Francaise right now which is more and more albergues are also offering private rooms. And even some of the group rooms are now using sleeping pods where you can pull a shade down and have privacy to yourself, although you still be using a bathroom, a shared bathroom. The typical cost for a municipal albergue is somewhere between 5 and 10 euros, there are still donativo albergues, which are often run by parishes. Donativo does not mean free. It means you're making a donation. Sometimes dinner is even included. And I think a donation of about 10 euros is a good amount. And add on to that if dinner is included. Then there are also hotels, casa rurales, and other kinds of places to stay. I prefer the albergue experience because I like the idea of being in community with other people. And there are some albergues or hostels where there is an intentional ritual, a dinner that's shared in community or a religious service or something else that creates a sense of community with the people that are staying that night. And to me, that's most prized of all. The opposite of that is to check in and check out of a hotel and go to a commercial restaurant. And essentially, you're much more isolated because you're not meeting people and rubbing elbows with them as you're enjoying your overnight and your meals. Then as far as whether to have a uh, sleeping bag or not, I always bring a light sleeping bag and a silk liner. And the sleeping bag is quite light, but I'll tell you there have been a few times at high elevation that I've been happy, even in the summertime, to have a sleeping bag. I'm thinking of Osebrero in August, where the temperature was down to maybe something like 
five to 10 degrees. And when somebody opens the window, which I hope they do when there's a hundred people sleeping at the Osborough Municipal, then uh, it can get drafty. I unzip my sleeping bag and use it as a comforter and uh, have my sleeping bag liner. Can you wild camp? Many people that I see on the forum that plan on bringing a tent and that start to bring a tent, most of them end up sending it ahead to Santiago and not use it. Like you said, there's a communal experience when you walk and in the afternoon you're together with all the pilgrims you meet up at the albergue. And if you're on your own in a tent, you'll, you'll lose that. And people miss that, I think, sometimes. And don't think about that when they make plans for tents. I, I do know people also that want to have a night outside. And it's occasionally the case that albergues in rural areas might have a lawn. And so it's easy to pull your sleeping sack and sleeping bag out on the lawn and have a night under the stars. And there are some formal campgrounds where you can pitch your tent. But I agree with Ivar that most people, because hostels are inexpensive, because of the community life, um, decide not to camp ultimately. There's one final question. Do you think the Camino has lost its true essence as a pilgrimage? Does it feel more like a hiking trail now? I think you get out of the Camino what you put into it. So if you're looking for a religious experience, then that's what you find. If you're looking for spiritual experience, that's what you'll find. If you're looking for recreation, that's what you'll find. And so prepare also to be surprised. You may find your categories expanding based on the experience. But I think it's hard to walk 800 kilometers or 500 miles and not be transformed. And then to experience some of these great sites and to participate in this ancient tradition I feel like I'm walking in the footsteps of the thousands of pilgrims and millions of pilgrims that have done this since you know the 10th century. So uh, if you bring that to it, the Camino really can never can never change. Look at it another way. It's almost always changing just a little bit, right? Because it's Camino walking now is very different from walking it 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago, right? Now people take airplanes home. What, what kind of a Camino is that? You take the plane home, you only walk there, and then you, you take the plane home. You know, before they used to walk here and then they walked home. So, you know, if you think about someone that had been walking to and from Santiago and ask him, is, has the Camino changed? Is it yes, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. You only yeah. walk halfway. So I think yeah. it's always changing a little bit, right? But uh, as you said, Sandy, whatever you put into it, it's what you're going to get out of it. And, you know, you really, you make a good point that there are, like, when you bring your smartphone on your Camino and you have your earphones listening to your music, you know, from back home, then that's a lot different experience than even 30 years ago when you didn't have a giant computer in your hand. So I think it does take some intentionality to create the experience. So I hope that people will be open to what it has to offer because what it has to offer is powerful. And as I see and talk with people, it's a life-changing experience. Thank you both so much uh, for joining me for this event. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Ivar. And thank you, Cicero. No, thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. And thanks to Sandy and Ivar for joining us for our live event and sharing their expertise about the Camino Frances with us. You can find out more about the fully reworked guidebook and map book to the route on the Cicerone website, along with the full video of the live event and plenty of other guidebooks, articles and videos about pilgrimage routes. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast app or on the Cicerone website. And let us know what you think by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts or by emailing us live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. You can also check out our Cicerone Camino Facebook page. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you soon.